Welcome to the show. It's Joey here, and today I'm chatting with Alan Thompson. Alan was my first official PT client back in the days when I used to work the parks in the morning and then at the local Anytime Fitness during the day. This was in Surrey Hills in inner city Sydney. Now, Alan was the owner of a small cafe that I used to go to all the time. The place was called Bang Bang, and it was at the top of Reservoir Street in Surrey Hills, for those that know the area, and it made the most epic breakfasts around. We got to know each other through the cafe, and after some time, he actually came and started training with me down at the gym there. Alan had a past life that I was completely unaware of at the time. He had spent the better part of three decades traveling the world as a DJ and was actually one of the few people responsible for the birth of house music and electronic music generally worldwide. He held residencies in numerous famous clubs in many parts of the world. To name a few, he had residencies in Ibiza and London, and he played a stint of about 13 years for Ministry of Sound. Now, he's a humble man, and he's not prone to telling stories about himself. So having him on the show today and being able to explore this story with him was a real treat for me. I'm sure it will be for you too. I really hope you enjoy the journey. Now, side note, the Jungle Alliance website is now live. You can find information there about how we are uniting world-class gym owners and coaches, as well as access various articles and courses for anyone in the fitness game. Check it out at junglealliance.com. And if there's anything that we can help you with, please go ahead and leave us a message on the page. Now, onto the show. Please enjoy today's epic chat with Alan Thompson. Alan Thompson, thanks for joining me, my brother. Hey, how are you doing, my brother? Mate, I'm good. good. Yeah, really Sweet. good. Sweet. You know, Friday afternoon yeah, at the gym. And all that. Uh, it's, uh, good it's, to see you, brother. Thanks, man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, loving the gym space, too. Wow. Yeah, it's come a long way. How huh? things have changed, eh? Yeah. <laughs> For the better, I must say, and, and congratulations. They're awesome space. Thanks, man. Yeah, yeah. Did you, yeah, what do you remember of the old gym, the one that was down the road? Oh dear! Um, I remember, <laughs> I remember trying to jump up. I'm sorry to uh, climb up the rope and not doing a very good job of it. That's what I remember. <laughs> but I also do remember my first experience um, on the rings. Oh yeah, um, which you taught me uh, there back in the day. Yes. Um, so that was always a, a a very good memory of mine of of the old gym and getting my first. Um, I don't remember what the position is called. Cat skin the cat. That's it. Where you go up, legs up. go through. That's right. Yep. Yeah. Um, uh, and yeah, I mean, I'm not as um, uh, as involved with the, the rings as much as I was back then, but I occasionally get them out. I mean, one of the, actually, funny enough, last year when we went into lockdown, I got them out. Right on. Went over to the park, popped them over some branches. Yeah. Uh, off I go. Um, yes, got the blisters in my hand. Nice. <laughs> I forgot about that. Oh, damn, I didn't bring any chalk. Never mind, it'd be all right. <laughs> and then lo and behold, yeah, blisters. Um, yeah, they're the kind of tool, like, when you don't have anything else, yeah. if you know a little bit about what to do with them, 100%. they're awesome. Yeah. Could you still remember, like, did you still have enough, um, you know, enough oh, totally. of an arsenal to make it a workout? Yeah, 100%. You know, um, whether, you, whether you're doing... Um, uh, um, sorry, <laughs> bicep curls. <laughs> yep, absolutely. But, but mostly, probably a lot of back work more than anything. All the pulling variations yeah, and pulling stuff. One hundred percent. Yeah. 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 But again, you know, it, um, especially during lockdown, is that um, making use of what you have available. You know, whether yeah. it's free weights at home, whether you go into the park um, uh, framework, yeah, or jumping on some rings. Yeah, just have to make use of whatever you got. Really. 
Well, I remember first lockdown, you came over a couple of secret yes. sessions over at my place at Balmain. Dude, indeed. Because I had a barbell. Yep. Which you were, it was like, I remember you were like, dude, I see you got a bar, like I can't find a bar anywhere. Can I come and use your barbell? <laughs> like, yeah, let's do some squats. Desperate measures. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know, having that available at your doorstep is just amazing. It is cool. Um, yeah. I, I just wish I had a space to be able to do that. Your apartment living, yeah, so it's not really applicable. Yeah. I mean, I, I entertained a lot of my um, my neighbors by <laughs> by doing some work on the balcony, in my, you know, just in a pair of shorts, of course. Um, <laughs> darling, darling. No. So, yeah, well, sorry, we, sorry, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely um, a few peering through the curtains. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> I remember seeing um, taking my my dogs for a walk when we're in Balmain, and it's like a these big developments kind of just across the water from Dremoyne. Yep. But I remember there's a bit where you come in, there's all these apartments and there was, and it was cool because you could look at like, I don't know, probably 15 different levels of apartments. And there was a girl, she was obviously a gymnast. She must have been about eight or nine. Yep. And she had on the balcony like a miniature set of the horizontal bars. Oh, wow. And she, like she wasn't, like she wasn't going, she was going all, it wasn't like big open swing like set, but she yeah. was like kicking ass. Going for it. Yeah, and, I, and you know, and she did a little routine and then she stopped and then she looked over her and I was like, oh, that was fucking awesome. And she was like, oh, thanks, you know. like, <laughs> But, it, you know, it was cool kind of what you saw yeah. people innovating with yeah, at that innovating. time. And, 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 of course, you forget into your own little world and forget that there are probably eyes on you. So, you know, you're sweating and making faces and whatever. And <laughs> it's very funny at the moment, the, the building opposite me, there's a guy, I don't know what he's doing, he must be... I don't know, whatever. Anyway, he's on a on a bike, a static bike. Oh, yeah. And he's there for hours and hours. And I'm like, dude, just go and walk. <laughs> you could ride your bike to another destination. <laughs> and he's just on his balcony facing out, just riding, 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 riding. And he must do about two hours a night. It's funny, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, you, you know, you're a bit of, a, you don't mind a bit of a bodybuilding style type of training. Do you do the cardio stuff? Do you do the treadmill? What's that? Cardio what? (laughs) Actually, you told me this that one time, and I always repeated, it's wasted calories. (laughs) (laughs) Right on, man. 100%. Those calories are going towards building my muscles. I'm not wasting them on anything. Yeah, right on. So you don't fuck with with those machines, with the treadmill? I've never been in that section. Yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) I tried the step machine once. I'm like, what the fuck is this about? Just go and climb up some steps. Do some frog jumps, <laughs> man. It's um. I, we should tell the story of of how we met each other. Yeah. Uh, because relevant to the training piece, you were my sure. first official PT client. That's correct, I believe. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I met you. I met you at the cafe, didn't I? Yeah, the cafe. Hundred I mean, obviously, I I'd opened Bang Bang on uh, Reservoir Street. Yep. Surrey Hills. For those who yeah haven't been that is it still there? It uh, it. Obviously, the site is still there, but it's not the same entity. It's now a small bar. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, right. That's pretty good, actually. But yeah. Man, it was one hell of a spot. Yeah, for sure. I would go there. I would teach my classes in the park, and then I would go there and and eat the breakfast. breakfast. And we would chat a little bit. Yep. And you were like, hey, man, I'm interested in doing some training. That's right. Yeah. And that was right at the time where I had just started working at Anytime Fitness, which was on the same street. Same street. Yep. You weren't doing any training at that time, were you? Oh, no. I mean, I'll be very honest. In that, you know, I was 50 at the time. I just turned 50. Yep. Um, and up until that point in my life, <laughs> I just thought people that went to the gym were losers. 
<laughs> to be honest. Right on. Uh, and, you know, being a gay man as well, you know, and especially in the London, because obviously I'm from London, and, and in the scene there, you know, all the gay boys would have their tops off uh, at any opportunity. Um, uh, obviously, it's few, a lot of them were juiced up, so, you know, they were right. like, and I'm like, dude, you're a fucking loser. Oh, uh, wow. <laughs> like, so even even on an, on an attraction level, you weren't like, you didn't appreciate it? Oh, maybe secretly. <laughs> <laughs> Admiration is the word. Like, yeah, okay. No, I'm just kidding. But I always thought, look, you know, I, I don't need to go to the gym. I was a very slight man, um, probably around 67, 68 kilos. Uh, I'm 176 centimeters. So I've always been very slight. So I thought, I guess I thought that was sort of healthy for a better word yeah Do you know what I mean uh, and I never you're a very naturally n- lean guy aren't yes you? so I never thought there was a need for me to go training right to be honest um, and I think if you re- I don't know if you remember this but I had a, stro- a heart attack stroke that's what got me into the gym uh, yeah I yeah. do remember that yeah, yeah. so yeah. I had a, a very mild heart attack um, and my cardio- cardiologist said to me the best thing you can do for your heart and, and as you get older as well is to put on muscle mass because that will help you um, with your bones and all your structure as you get older, um, you know, falls, all that type of stuff. Yeah, structural integrity. Yeah, and that's really why I started training. That was my motivation. And so... Because it was a bit of a shock, you know, when you have a heart attack and then all of a sudden you're on an operating table having stents put into your your arteries, it's like, oh, this is a bit of a wake-up call. And no other reason I knew it was hereditary, so... Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I took the advice, really. And then I think it was around the same time as I got to know you at the cafe and you mentioned about training. I'm like, oh, okay, put two and two together. Better, better do this. Yeah. Um, and here we are today. Man, yeah. you're bigger than me now. <laughs> fuck. <laughs> fuck. Fuck right now, I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, do me a favor, go a bit more straight down the barrel of this thing. Oh, uh, yeah. Sorry, you got, the, you got the floppy arm. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> How's that? Yeah, that's good. Yes, yeah, sweet. Um, so at that time, the, you had a bit of a sort of misconception. Or, you know, I harbor those same feelings about, you know, certain buff dudes and, <laughs> sure. you know, gym folk. Like, the, it's a very, it's a nuanced community, isn't yeah. it? And there's, there's people so. where you're like, you know, like when I go to a fitness first, I feel, you know, yep. that about a lot of people. But, you know, you come here, it's a different sort of vibe. Yep. But um, did, you, did you immediately view the training thing differently because of that experience or were you just like okay fuck i gotta do this even though i don't necessarily want to i think i mean my mental approach to most things that i do is a positive thing anyway and realizing that you know this is going to change my life it's going to give me longevity of life better quality of life i guess what i was searching for at the time um and i think you helped me develop a I don't, I'd say natural, but at that age, it's, it's pretty late in my life. But a natural, um, uh, um, what's the word? I'm looking for your attention to training. Right, like an awareness? Sense, yeah, I guess. Uh, and I think probably starting off with you and learning all about training and, and strength and, and form and all that sort of stuff, um, give me the, the correct starting blocks, I guess, to, or to my path of training. It's beautiful, man. No, 100%. It's, I mean, it's I funny. It, I think if I'd gone on my own and, and tried to do it, I probably wouldn't have lasted as long. Yeah, right. Um, and, you know, you set me up from day one with, with, with correct form um, and setting goals, uh, achievable goals and all that type of stuff, nutrition, all that sort of stuff. I mean, as best I could, I think I, I look back at that time for me as a coach 
and I was very green. You know, I had strong beliefs and I, and I was onto some yep. good stuff. But I also, I mean, I was also very limited in my view. Sure. You know, and I remember, I remember, you know, I remember seeing you develop into, like you were becoming your own coach. Sure. And you, and you would say to me, you would like, should I, should I stick around and do some extra work? You know, like, should I do more? And I was like, no, no, no. Like what we just did in that hour is plenty. Yeah. You know, and you were like, oh, but I, I feel like I could just do some more sets and, and I'm like, no, 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 it's good, man. You know, we did. I'd still do them. <laughs> yeah, and you would do them. And, and, I, and I realized, I was like, oh, Alan is like totally, like he's on his own path now. Like he's yep. empowered and he's yep. into it. Yeah. And, and I probably, you know, uh, like subconsciously tried to like hold you back a little bit at first. And then I realized and I'm like, no, let this thing happen. Yeah. So I look back at that and I'm like, man, you, you ran with the ball. I, like, oh, yeah, I did. I, maybe yeah. I taught you a couple of key lessons, but really like. Yeah. Oh, look, you know, I put, you know, I put a lot of time and effort into finding out things and about, you know, research, all that type of stuff. And, yeah, I did a lot of reading and videos. and Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, your it. nutrition was more on point than mine was. Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, being a little bit of a foodie, um, that goes a long way. Hey, I'm and from Sydney. I'm a foodie too, yeah, man. Of course you are. <laughs> Avocado and toast, man. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> <and acai> bowls. <laughs> um, but I guess more... To the point, my lifestyle up until then was pretty good with food. You know, I, I mean, I'm, not, I'm not being an angel or or a god here, and I'm like, yeah, dude, I eat my thing. But you know, I don't eat sweets, lollies. I don't drink soda, and yeah, um, you know, I I make all my dishes. I make food. I don't eat fast food. I you know, yeah. The last time I had McDonald's when I was drunk in Queensland about ten years ago. Right on. So you know, gives you an idea of, of my lifestyle. I suppose my lifestyle choices. Yeah, at least. Yeah, and you, d- you don't drink alcohol, do you? No. Yeah. Again, no other reason not to be a martyr or anything is that I don't like being drunk. I don't like the feeling. Yeah, right. I mean, I can speak freely on this podcast, I'm sure. Absolutely. Happily, happily to take a, you know, a kilo of cocaine. But, you know, a beer is a different story. A beer is a different story. Oh, yuck. Yeah. Toxic. Still, Toxic. Still, and still these days? <laughs> Uh, the cocaine? Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, not these days. I can't afford it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm joking. No, only because I, I guess because I'm not involved in the music clubbing scene anymore. Yeah. Uh, obviously, the temptation when you're amongst it all the time is, is greater. Yeah. Um, these days, I don't really go, well, I don't go clubbing, put it that way. You know, I'd rather go out and have a nice dinner. Yeah, well, I guess there's, I mean, whether whether you're doing some drugs or you're drinking, there's a price to pay, isn't there, for That's right. engaging yep. in that life? Oh, 100%. Whether it is the, literally the price um, or, or the feeling the next day. Do you think that, and, and obviously we're going to get to that, you know, yep. yeah, momentarily, but do you feel like your, your sort of interest in physical development and health and all those things has come about from what your life was like as a younger man? Um, I wouldn't say directly, to be honest. Yep. Um, you know, when I was partying hard and doing my thing, that was it. You know, that was my life. Um, I didn't think that I was doing anything bad to my body, although I was probably ruining it. But, um, you know, I, I, I've stood the test of time, I guess. And I mean, considering the lifestyle that I have had, um, I think I'm doing pretty well. <laughs> I'm still here, put it that way. Damn right. <laughs> How old are you now? 59. Right on, man. Yeah, so you know the big six zero next. Yeah, I mean they're all which is they're all the big one. When, like I'm about guess, I'm gonna be forty in a couple of years. It's, yeah. you know, I guess from from my point of view, it's um, you know, it's going down that path of of age and stuff. Um, I just see it as a number. 
for the start. You know, I, I don't, uh, you know, I don't concede to the, you know, you're 59, so you should be doing this, wearing this, doing that. I think you're as young as what you feel yourself. Um, the only thing that I do these days in my life is I try to dress appropriately, uh, and most of the time it's in black. <laughs> One, it's easier to pull things out of the wardrobe, yeah. and secondly, you know, there's nothing worse, and I'm, this is my only opinion, there's nothing worse than seeing an old guy who's trying to be young. <laughs> you With know. the flashy Versace glasses, the collared shirt. Oh, 100%. The spray-painted hair. Or the other one. <laughs> <laughs> the other one is like, you know, you go to the beach and they've got their, they still got their 90s board shorts on. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, move with the times, but be appropriate. Yep. And that's what I suppose I try to do. Okay. Yeah, a little bit of discretion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Um, so tell me, tell me about the, the music career. This oh, is, wow. this is the side <laughs> of Alan that, and we were talking before the show and you, you know, you said yourself, you're like, you've never mentioned, we've never spoken a lot about it. No. Um, and 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 you said you know earlier you're like yeah, I, I've never really seen why why other pe- or understood why other people would be interested in it. Yep. Um, but you know, and, and I'm like, yeah, I think people would be interested. Yeah. Tell me, um, tell me how you got started as a DJ. Sure. I guess I mean going back to what you just said there about what I I don't think people will find it interesting because it it is my life I guess, um, and. I've lived it to the, to the max and I've enjoyed every moment of it, you know. And DJing and music has played about 30 years of my life, has been a part of it. Um, if not longer, actually. Let me think, it's 22, yeah. Oh my God, actually longer. <laughs> yeah, you know. Um, when did you start? I guess I start uh, around 89, 1989, that is. <laughs> right you know, um, probably a little bit. Not long after you were born. Yep. <laughs> yep. Exactly. Yep, six years. <laughs> <laughs> I was the same age as your godson. <laughs> that's, that's kind of weird. Um, puts things into perspective, doesn't it? And I guess um, I, I don't know if you've heard of the Summer of Love. If if, if that's ever a, a thing for you. Yeah. So basically, the Summer of Love was the nineteen. Well, no, no the house thing. A house thing. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So nineteen eighty-eight was when house music first appeared in the UK, along with ecstasy. Oh wow. So my summer of 88 was spent um, going to illegal warehouse parties and popping pills and, and having the time of my life. Right on. Um, at the time, I was working in menswear retail, so really, really boring, uh, you know, working five days a week and doing some couple of bar jobs on the side to make a bit of extra money. But come the weekend, it was literally clubbing for 72 hours. Um, and, ba- and basically, you know, we, a couple of the American DJs had come over to do some of the festivals, um, and I was transpired by the mu- firstly by the music because of the drugs I was taking, but also the sound, this new sound of house music. You know, up until that point, you know, I was only uh, um, exposed, I guess, to pop music and soul and R and B and that type of stuff. And then these guys came over from America, i.e., Tony Humphries and Frankie Knuckles, these type of people, and they were mixing vinyl together but like wow this shit's blowing my mind you know because prior to that you go to a nightclub and it'd be like play the whole record out of, hey you know next up is this casey and the sunshine band right <laughs> you know that sort of stuff i'm yep. like hey happy 21st birthday to sarah <laughs> <laughs> and that's what nightclubs were yeah you know so to have these guys come from america with this new sound and, and also these skills I mean, now when I look back at it, the, the skills weren't that great. But they were what they called back then blending. 
tracks together. Right. And that was the journey that was that was going on. So I was sort of inspired by that really. I'm like, okay, I want to do that. And it wasn't because and and certainly in the last twenty years people have been mm, I have to be careful what I say. People want to be DJs for the wrong reason. They want to be famous. And this is an easy uh, avenue to do that. While it used to be, it's not so much these days because there are too many of them. But for me, it was never, ever about that. It was about the music and actually just being up there and entertaining the, the crowd and them enjoying the music. That's what it was all about for me. And that's why I became a DJ because I was just literally overwhelmed by, by what was going on with the sound, with the drugs, with the mixing. What the fuck is the mixing going on? And you know, I would spend hours just standing beside the DJ booth watching what these guys were doing. I'm like, what are they, how did they do this? I want to know how they do this. Um, saved up my money, bought decks, bought a mixer. Of course, let's, let's remember here, it's 1989, no internet. Right. <laughs> no technology, no podcasts, no social media, nothing. Um, so I was self-taught, you know, obviously because what we call beat matching uh, is a, a technical skill that's not used anymore because it's all uh, digital. But, you know, I spent hours just watching these guys going, what are they doing? Okay, let me go home to my new shiny decks and okay, let me try that. Oof, I was crash bang wallop, what the fuck? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> so it took me probably three to six months before I really honed in on that skill. And I would spend hours and hours and hours and hours, you know, in, my, in the bedroom, literally in my bedroom, um, practicing, trying to work things out, um, figuring out what key changes were, what BPMs were, how do I, how do I approach these turntables where the record's going round and round and round. How do I make that match up with this one over here? And, and what are the tools I have available to be able to do that? So that was a, a huge learning curve for me. And you, so you're at the club peering into the DJ booth, yep. trying Watching. to catch a glimpse of how they're doing it and then yep. trying to replicate. Yep, basically. Man, and I mean... Because obviously there's, there's no manuals, there's no... Yep. There, at that time as no well... No books were, on it. No books, there was no... Um, even industry magazines. You know, now you can get a book, How to DJ 101. Yeah, you know, I mean, you could just pop on the on the internet and go, okay, how do I be a DJ in three steps? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? there's a masterclass out That's there. Right. Yeah, yeah, totally, man. And so, and were you? What age were you? Like, were you a teenager living at home with parents? Were you no, living no. by yourself? Twenty-seven. Okay, at age nine, twenty-six. Twenty-six. Yeah, yeah. I was already left home um, in a small Welsh town called Swansea. Uh, moved to London to the big bright lights. Yep. Um, I'd been in London for four, no, I was 89, so seven years by then. Yeah, seven years by then. Um, obviously had a full-time job in menswear, like I said, um, doing three, four bar jobs a week to pay for my vinyl addiction as it came and my cocaine addiction. <laughs> uh, well, actually, ex ecstasy uh, at that time, it wasn't, I hadn't uh, progressed to the, the white powder by then. <laughs> where was the, where did the ecstasy come, was that made in... Is that Europe or like where did that come uh, yeah. from? Uh, Holland, I guess, the most of it, Holland, Belgium. Okay. Uh, those sort of places. And at the time it was £20 a pop. Um, but that was, was that we, expensive that's, back then? That's when we had the good shit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you it guys actually don't know what it's like. <laughs> that's right. When it actually was MDMA, you know. Right. I mean? um, you know, clean, would last for 20 hours. You'd only need one a night, that type of thing. I guess also it's about, you know, your body's tolerance of it as well. You know, it's a new thing, so. 
Yeah. God, it's been a long time since I've took something. <laughs> <laughs> Man, that must, like, so when that hit the party scene, what mm. was, were people doing, like, people smoking weed? Or was it just really alcohol? Alcohol, yeah. There was no other kinds of substances uh, being used? Not really. I mean, poppers, uh, amyl nitrate, that would have been in the... Poppers? Yeah, uh, amyl nitrate. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, it stinks the hell shit out of the place. But I'm on nitrate. That's just, I mean, that's kind of big in the gay scene, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, people would sniff that on the dance floor and you'd be like, oh, can you just move away? <laughs> yeah. you know what, I mean? um, what else was around? Uh, Quaaludes, I guess. Oh, yeah. Um, and I only know about them because the Wolf of Wall Street. Oh, okay. But I've I know never, I've never seen them, but yeah, Quaaludes. But yeah, he, he, you know, they were revered amongst, I think, you know, yeah. whatever, the finance guys and whatnot. Yeah. I but they know. were a short-term thing, weren't they? Yeah, that was like the mid-80s. I mean, I mean, they were around for disco because they were a bit like a speed amphetamine type thing. Okay. Um, and, that, and of course, amphetamine was big at the time too. Speed was, yeah, right. Yeah, before ecstasy came along, Okay. Certainly in the UK anyway, and then obviously, bang. Here comes the ecstasy. Was that like, and I mean, for folks listening, yep. I'm sure many of them know what ecstasy is like. Some don't. Yep. It, it's obviously compared to a lot of those other drugs, it, it tends to make you very happy. Well, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a happy upper. Yeah. Um, you know, it obviously gets your endorphins going and all your, um, your, <laughs> your love thoughts. <laughs> um, and it is basically a, a massive euphoric feeling of, of, Ecstasy, I guess that's why it's called that. Um, you know, rushes and and w- wanting to touch and love everybody and hug everybody and like everything is nice and like oh my god, this is just amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and then combined in a, you know a dark sweaty nightclub with two thousand other people on the same thing, and the music pumping through the speakers. And then you're closing your mind, close your eyes, and then your mind just wanders off to the beats and yeah, yeah. What could be better? hundred oh, percent. Um, That must have been a Like that must have just revolutionised the nightlife Like it must have just Completely Yeah I mean that was the turning point for Into what we know as house music and clubbing today I guess One of the I mean as a side note One of the biggest things and changes in the UK um, That happened was the fighting on the football um, fields Up until that point you know Hooliganism was rife amongst uh, soccer uh, and the soccer fans and the rival between um, certain teams, you know, Celtic and Rangers, for instance, the Manchester United and Liverpool, yeah. you know, they would fight on the terraces. And, you know, the the stadiums had um, barriers up against at the front so that the, the fans wouldn't mix with each other. And, you know, they were, when they came from the stations, they were escorted by police because they had to separate all the fans. Then ecstasy came along. Lo and behold, it literally stopped all the all that. Really? Yeah, 100%. Within six months of ecstasy arriving in the UK, the the numbers of um, uh, fights for a bear word or incidents at, at football stadiums literally vanished. Holy shit. Yeah, that was the biggest impact it had on social, <laughs> on the social side of um, the UK. Which is in such contrast to the effects of alcohol, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Where you, people get booze and they just love fighting. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 again, you know, it's going back to that um, euphoric uh, feeling of ecstasy, and uh, yeah, it just literally changed the landscape. I can imagine that, like two two rival groups of football hooligans, all of a sudden just making out with yeah, each other. Yeah, basically, like, <laughs> oh, we lost. Oh, never mind. Next <laughs> time, yeah. yeah, let me give you a hug. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it still happens today. You know, I mean, the UK doesn't really have any of that previous um, culture. Does it not? No. 
Yeah, right, not to that degree. I think it's because, you know, the, the people that have come through after that, you know, that's what they lead by example, don't they? What's been from previous. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it was very interesting. So tell me about how, so you went from this 27-year-old guy <laughs> going home, trying to learn the techniques. Yep. How did you go from there to becoming, to, to getting your first gigs? I guess, uh, um, give it a little backstory, I guess. Um, a, a nightclub opened in London called Trade, T-R-A-D-E. Um, it was the first after-hours club that was licensed in the UK. So it opened at 3 a.m. in the morning um, and then closed at 12 midday. So mm-hmm. it was a long session. Um, up until that point, there hadn't been any after-hours clubs. So I started going to trade on, on its first night, actually, um, and it became an institution for me. Uh, and you'll get to hear why in a moment. But I started, um, I built up the confidence, I guess, to make mixtapes for you, those young people that don't know what a mixtape is. <laughs> <laughs> a cassette. Um, yeah, like a playlist on like a plastic a playlist, box. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, so I started to make mixtapes and give them out to all the friends. I, I, and the other thing, I guess, is that you know when you go when you went clubbing in the late nineties, sorry, um, all of a sudden everybody in the club is your friend, you know, because you're all on the same drugs and you're all like hugging each other, and, and it's amazing. You know, I still to this day have probably my closest five friends I met at trade, in the, you know of 1990 whatever. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I made very close friends um, at trade, um, and I was started to give out cassettes and um, getting the confidence that putting these mixes together. I'd spent all week putting them together, learning the mixing points and everything. And then basically um, I'd put my number on them um, and they were being copied. People were starting to copy them hmm. and giving them to their other friends and, and stuff, you know. And before you know it, one of these um, cassettes were being played at a after party on the Sunday afternoon. And the promoter from Trade was at the party. Huh. I was like, who's this dude? Who's this music? Um, so he took the cassette um, and lo and behold, a few weeks later, I actually got a call from him. We didn't have mobile phones back then. <laughs> <laughs> so I had put my landline, <laughs> as it was, number on, on the cassette, um, and I got a call literally out of the blue. Hey, is this Alan Thompson? I'm like, yep. He's like, this is Lawrence from Trade. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> and he's like, listen, you know, I was at a party the other week. Um, I managed to get hold of one of your cassettes. Really love your sound. Uh, how would you like to do a test run at the club one night? I mean, it was not something that I'd planned to happen or that I was aspiring to. I was just playing my music and doing my shit and having a fun time doing it. Yeah. Uh, and then basically we had arranged to play at a one-off special party that he was holding a warehouse party separate from trade because he did other parties as well. So I did the opening set for that night for this um, long weekend party. Um, and basically you got such a and on the, on the day uh, sorry on the night um, I was playing for two of the first two hours they asked me to extend an hour into, the, into that so I did um, because the set was going well it was going really well and the, and the club was a vibe and everything and we didn't really have set times those days we were like okay you go on now and you go on <laughs> whatever um, and then it went really really well you know obviously I came off and he was like oh man that was awesome I loved it look at the people and all that stuff. I was like oh okay cool yeah yeah, yeah. cool thanks thanks um, and then it was actually about two weeks later before he called me back and he just said look you know um, we have a spot coming up a trade that we need to fill um, one of the the, re- the regular DJs um, is not working out and we want to replace them um, would you be interested I was like yeah let's give it a go um, and I'll never forget it because obviously trade for me at that time it had been open about a year 
Um, and even in that that year, uh, you know, it became my life. It became my church on a Sunday morning. I guess you know, it was like everything in the week led up to going to trade and meeting with with all my friends and taking ecstasy and enjoying the music and then, so you know, to be asked to play that was just a a, a dream come true that I hadn't dreamt. Does that make sense? Because um, I wasn't chasing it; uh, it just came to me. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I did my first set of trade. Um, it would have been. I think it was September 1991, something like that. Uh, and lo and behold, I was a resident DJ there for, ended up being 13 years. Wow. Yep. Man. <laughs> 13 years. So obviously the first night went really, really well. I was a nervous wreck, mind you. Um, I hadn't taken any drugs because I wasn't going to do that. <laughs> um, and, you know, and playing vinyl is a very different thing to playing digital or, or CDs and everything. So, you know, you can fuck up really, really easy. And it's very clear through the through the speakers if you do fuck up. Because <laughs> um, it's all live, It's right, all live, it? you know. You know, the slight touch of the deck. Or oh, don't forget, you know, every deck, it, it's mechanical. So they're not the decks I have at home. Um, so I don't know what the feel of them is. The mixer is different. You know, I don't know what the levels are, and all that stuff comes in with experience as you as you as you broaden your your range, I guess. Um, but I did it. <laughs> I passed the test, I guess. Uh, and literally within, I think, about three days, like Tuesday, Wednesday after that gig, he was like, "Man, you got the job." Uh, so you start next week, and yeah, as I said, uh, the rest is history. Thirteen years later, you know there were a lot of um, ups and downs in that thirteen years. A lot of changes, a lot of musical changes. Um, my career, um, you know, spiraled upwards from there. I mean, trade was always my base residency, um, and I owe a lot to Lawrence for giving me the opportunity. Um, but you know, you make your own paths as well. I'm a great believer in that. People might open the door, but you have to walk through it. Absolutely. Yeah, and um, I guess from there, um, you know, I started to get bookings at other clubs, and then I got an agent, then I gave up my full-time job, uh, decided to become a DJ full-time, be- purely because of the, the amount of work I was being offered. Um, yeah. What was the, what, did it, what does a residency look like? Is it once a week, you play at this time? Everyone knows to come see you on a Sunday morning at 5 a.m., whatever. Right. Yeah. So one of the unique things about trade that set it apart from other clubs in London and around the world, I guess, is that we didn't have guest DJs or headliners. We had five DJs. They played every week the same time. Right. Occasionally, you know, maybe somebody might be away, so we would extend the set wherever. So there wasn't really any hierarchy in that because we were all treated the same. We were all paid the same. And also because the club would be completely at capacity within 30 minutes of opening the door, um, it was never really, you know, oh, that's just the warm-up set or that's the main set. We were all as equally important in creating the night as each other. And one of the things that that made it work was that us five DJs worked together as a team to create the musical journey throughout the night. We all had our own distinctive sound, but it all blended in well with each other to create the whole thing. I mean, you know, I've been to club nights where, you know, they've got a resident DJ. Yeah, sure, he's all right, or she's all right, whatever. And then next thing you've got the headliner, in brackets, you know, so-so has come all the way from this country, and then they go on. They don't know the crowd. They don't know what they're really into. Yeah, They just play what they think will work, you know, and I've seen some real disasters. Right. Oh, 100%. Just missing the mark. Just missing the mark, not reading the room, not reading the floor, not knowing what, what's been played before them, not knowing what's coming. 
And that's the difference but between having five residents that work together week in, week out to create the, the soundscape. I yeah. Um, and funny enough, we, uh, I will name names, um, we did have one particular international DJ that just begged and begged and begged because tra- trading it, it, it at its peak, and it, it, it hit its peak in very quickly in 1992, was considered one of the best clubs in the world. It was considered the best sound um, uh, system, and also, you know, the crowd, the atmosphere. I mean, it got so much attention from the media, um, you know, from TV, from radio, from magazines. You know, the, it was a members' club only, so you had to be a member to get in. Then, and ah, cool. And to become a member, you had to be recommended by a member. Oh wow! Yeah, so it was pretty exclusive. Yeah, that's quite unique, yeah. isn't yeah. it? And you know, it would probably hold about two and a half thousand people. Wow. So it's a big space, but a long, dark room with lasers and everything, and, and the most amazing sound system anyway. Like but the quintessential, like, uh, like dance club. Yeah. 100%. Yeah, right. And, you know, it was the first of its kind in the UK, so it really led the way musically and, um, and with the, the setup of the club itself. So, you know, people would line up, you know, week in, week out in the hope, can I get in, will I get in, um, you know, even to the point, you know, we had a door bitch, uh, as, they, as they became known as, um, who would pick the people that they thought could potentially come in as guests. Right. Because we would allow so many people in, uh, or friends of friends, of members and things like that. Um, but also the, then it became a destination for other DJs and pop stars and movie stars. To party at. Yeah, 100%. Right. Um, who was the DJ that wanted to play there? I want to tell you. <laughs> oh, yes. um, so uh, David Morales. Okay. So, I mean, he's a pretty household name. So, David was insisting that, you know, I want to play, I want to play. And his management dealt with our, with Lawrence, the thing. And then the end, Lawrence giving, okay, it's David Morales, let's give him a go. Literally, within 20 minutes, he was booed off. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, that's how musically integrity of the, of the punters, for a better word, was, you know, they know they shit. I mean, even, you know, I've made mistakes mixing, whatever, and you can hear, you know, on the dance floor, he's made a mistake. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And then you just put your hand up and go, yeah, thanks, guys. Yep. <laughs> but, you know, they, you built up a relationship with them. So right. They, they knew you, you know, um, and they wouldn't take no shit. You know, I, you know, I've put a track on thinking, oh, yeah, this will work. And they going, boo, take it off, Alan, you know, whatever. Um, so, you know, they were very, the, the integrity of the crowd was really kept you on your toes. Right. Um, but if you had that rapport with them, yeah, I mean, you I was, could afford to, to oh, sure, you have negotiate to, it. Yeah, and also you have to take risk or chances, you know, and yeah, they'll let you know if they like it or not. What's, um, what, did, what did David Morales do in 20 minutes that, that they I, hated? <laughs> I, I mean, it would have been, the, you know, I guess the choice of music. The, fa- the fact that it was another DJ, that's one. Right, he was okay. already on the chopping board. Where the fuck is the regular DJ? Yeah. Where's Alan or Malcolm or Steve or the other guys that were the other resident DJs? Obviously, they like, you know, crossed arms in the dance floor. Like, okay, so what are you going to do? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And I think from the outset, they, they just weren't having it. They were like, <laughs> nah, we don't want no guest DJ. I mean, you know, they dictated a lot. The dance floor dictated a lot. Um, you know, we're not having this. And I think he played a couple of tracks that were a bit too commercial for the club and the mixing wasn't going very well and they were just like... And then Lawrence was just like, all right, you have to come off. Wow. <coughs> and it wasn't me that had to take over because I was on before him. It was another James like, okay, on you go. And that was it. That was the end of any guest DJs ever to play a trade ever again. <laughs> and nobody ever played it ever again. Wow. Yeah, that was the first and only guest DJ ever a trade. Wow. Yep. 
So, what, I, like, I, I don't know a lot about the, the British club scene, but I used to, when I first got into um, electronic music, I bought Gatecrasher CDs. Oh, yep. And I know it was a club that was, was it in Manchester? Sheffield. Sheffield, okay. Yep. And from what I understood, there was, a, you know, there was quite a few yep. sort of really popular clubs like that sure. around the UK. Yep. Was he? Was he? Yeah, I played a gate crusher. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and also they used to do a festival, a musical festival in the summer. Okay. Yeah. Fuck yeah. Yeah. Their stuff was typically quite trancey. Yeah, uh, uh, trancey progressive. Right. Um, that was the main core of that um, that particular club. Yeah. I mean, they had two rooms as well. I mean, my sound at the time was, I guess, tech house for a better word. Um, uh, even though Trey didn't have guest DJs, I guessed it at a lot of clubs. Right. Um, purely, I mean, I guess a lot of people wanted to buy into the whole trade thing. Um, but yeah, Get Crusher was one of them. Yeah, okay. You know, you've got, yeah, then you've got Cream and, and uh, uh, let me think of some of those Progress, um, Back to Basics, um, Cheeky Monkey, uh, Sugar and Spice. Um, yeah, Ministry of Sound is the next one, of course. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Which I guess is the next. Uh, not so much the next, because probably the biggest brand that I've ever played for. Uh, Trade being a very underground club, an exclusive um, clientele, I guess. Uh, and then Ministry of Sound being a more mainstream brand that probably some of your listeners will know about. Yeah, um, I think for my generation, yeah, that was, yeah. that was the, the standout one. Yeah, it's probably the biggest clubbing brand in the world and still is today. Right. Yeah. And it's it, it was a club, yeah. That's it's where a, it started as. Yep, in uh, in a suburb called Elephant and Castle in London. So what castle? Elephant. Elephant Castle. Elephant and a castle. Elephant and a castle. Yeah. So that's a suburb hey, right in on. London. <laughs> <laughs> and basically, it's uh, two arches or three, maybe arches of a of, of a railway line. Okay. So I mean, that's in their logo, isn't it? Is that in their logo? No, their logo is more like a like a grid. Yeah, you're right. So, like in the ministry, as in Ministry of Agriculture, or the Ministry yeah, of this, okay. as the Ministry of Sound. <laughs> That's such a 90s design. I know, it's think about it, yeah. it is totally. <laughs> this will be cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's not so cool now. But yeah, basically they took over three arches in, in Elephant and Castle and just put you know bricks one end and bricks the other end oh, of wow. the arch yeah. uh, and put a sound system in there. Holy shit. Yeah. Uh, and the guy who owns it, Michael Polero, um, he was a financier in the city, got into clubbing, um, <laughs> as we did, you know, in the old 89, 88, 89, Summer of Love, and, and built his own club, basically. Okay. Yeah. And so, so Elephant and a Castle is, it's, it's not in London? Yes. Or it's, it's a, it's a suburb, suburb of London? Suburb, yeah. So it's, okay. it's on the river, at the banks of the River Thames. Yep. Um, near MI5, it's a, which is a big, uh, near Big Ben, I guess. Okay. Yes, yeah, so it's on the banks of the river, uh, and it's literally under the uh, a viaduct or the arches of, of a, a train line that comes into the. I think it's Waterloo, is the station. Then the train line's no longer was no longer used. Well, then the train line's above. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. It holds that up. Holds it up. Yep. Wow, what and a cool spot. Arches, yeah, under the they say when they're going over there. Yeah. So, so you you played there. How did your journey yep. go from from being the guy at trade? Yeah. You so, started to play at other clubs. So, Yep, um, I started to, I suppose, get gain a reputation in the music industry um, of a particular sound that I play in a particular style. Um, much more, much so in, in those early days of clubbing, DJs would have their own sound and very distinctive style, and we could separate them. You could know when who's on and what. 
I hate to say this, but in these these days, it could be the same person all night for you, all, you know, because they're all pretty much the same. Right. You know, they're all playing the same music from the same websites and, and in the same manner. Yeah. Music, the music has changed a lot in, in the way it's been produced and to identify... Anyway, we'll, that's another story, I guess. Um, Is that part of... Because there's like a formula that's crowd-pleasing, yes. yep. so you just stick to the formula? Yeah, well, and also... The, the music has been produced in a formula as well, whereas in the early days of house music, producers were experimenting. Yeah. So they were all doing different things at different levels and different... Now it's all very formulated. Right. I say all, um, the majority, because there's still like, people out there making decent music. Yeah. Um, and experimenting, pushing yeah, the boundaries. 100%. Yeah, yeah. People that are coming through, you know, I don't want to do what these guys are doing. I'm doing something else. So there will always be um, change. There will always be people that are innovative. In, in, um, but you know, a lot of music these days is very homogenized. Yeah, in my opinion. Yeah, anyway. yeah, would make sense. Yeah. Just before you go on to the the playing in other places, tell us what house music is. House music. Um, well, I guess it's it's a form of. I mean, it came from. I'll give you a better backstory, I guess. It came from a club in Chicago called The Warehouse. So Frankie Nichols was the uh, resident DJ there. I mean, The Warehouse had opened in like 1981, 82. So they were playing soul, R&B, and disco. But but Frankie started to create this, this sound. Um, he was producing and stuff. So he started to put these old disco tracks and soul tracks together and then sampling them and was using reel-to-reel. You know what real to real is? Like connecting <laughs> two different tapes? Yeah, yeah, basically. Right. Um, so, you know, he was doing all that sort of stuff and going into the studio and doing his own mixes so that he could play. Um, so that's where the term house came from because it was cool. the, the style of music that Frankie Knuckles played. For instance, then, you know, we've got garage music. Okay, you garage. Know, yeah, yeah, garage. Oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, it's my English accent. Um, no, no, no. Garage. I know it is. I know it is. No, you said it Aussie style. I know it is garage. Oh, oh, garage because yeah, from yeah. what I can tell, it's only Brits that listen That's to right, it. Garage. Well, it's, just a, it's a genre of music in itself. Right. Um, certainly back in the early days. And that came from Paradise Garage. Okay, which, okay, was, which, which was is a, a nightclub. Which is a nightclub in New York. Okay. And, and the, the uh, resident DJ was Larry Levan. Okay. So these are the these are the historically the the pioneers of the early sound of the, those two genres. They were the two, I guess, um, uh, spearheading that sound. So right. we had house in one in one side, and then we had garage the other side. Garage was basically more of a soulful vocal sound. And then what came in very early was, was acid. Acid came out of, um, I guess, Washington from or anything, but it was more about a a record label called Acid Tracks, right? Um, which was which was created, and they were using a nine oh nine drum sound and fucking it up, and that's where you go that acid. Okay, so that sort of didn't last that long. We about five years. Bit too fringy. Yeah, it was just really full on. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess you know house, house and garage were the the two mainstream, not mainstream because it wasn't mainstream at the time, were the two pioneering sounds, and everything else basically has come from that techno jungle, um, right? Trance, trance, prog. So, so they were the beginnings of like EDM. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So they were the two genres. Now we have all these subgenres yep. going off. I mean, now we have you know, 
100 different genres you know you go into somewhere like Beatport where we buy music from yeah. and then you see you know 20 genres and like God, it just used to be house music and that was it <laughs> <laughs> much easier okay so so um, you started playing other gigs yeah. how did you expand out from as I said you know my I guess people were getting interested in what I'm doing and there was a bit of attention on me and the club of course the, there's no denying that the attention was on trade and the DJs um, and I started to get um, invited to play at other clubs um, I then that was growing and growing and growing so it got to a point where I had to give up my job full time and then I took on an agent basically ah so you had to give up your full time gig at yep. trade no no my full time job uh, at the time working in retail oh okay yeah yeah because obviously uh, uh, trade was, uh, was Sunday morning it was an after hours right so it opened at 3am on Sunday morning closed I used to play about 5 till about 7 yeah I did the second slot would you sleep prior to that and get up early or would you stay up what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> you would just slam MDMA all night and then totally. go straight through. <laughs> yeah, I mean, basically, the f- maybe the first couple of months I would go in straight. Yeah, because I was still nervous and still young and still fresh behind the ears. But then once I got my confidence, I was like, yeah, let's drop a pinger. <laughs> <laughs> and then you know, it got to the stage where I wouldn't even go clubbing without being off my tits. Yeah, right. <laughs> and what what about the rest of the week? Were you getting high? Were you, no, were you partying? Or? No, I mean, that, it's honestly, it's a great myth about. DJs about their party all the time, whatever. I mean, at the end of the day, you still got to live. You still got to do your shit. Yeah. Um, you know, but I like most things in my life. I do tend to like again going back to my training. Uh, whatever it is, I put my all to it. So a lot of the time during the week would be spent searching out new music, um, going record shopping, finding out those elusive mixes that nobody else had because that, you know that was that played a huge part of your your sound. Uh, and for me. Um, because I had this techie sound, uh, that's what we call it these days. Um, you know, it was harder for me to find that that, that music. So I spent a lot of the time during the week honing in on my skills, practicing my mixing. Um, certainly in the early years, anyway. Um, uh, and then working with my agent about, you know, okay, what clubs do you want to play at? Okay, let's target these clubs, or you know, who, what, what, what. Um, invitations have I received this week what inquiries that we have so you know it became a business right you know yeah um, and, and 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 I guess I as the DJ was the product yep you know so like anything really I guess whether you're an actor whether you're a singer or whatever same sort of thing agent, yep. agent will, will actively go out there to find you work and so what did that look like do you do you were you in a position where it's like you got gigs happening all throughout the week and you're traveling from here to there is it yeah look you know i mean the majority of, of gigs would be thursday friday saturday sunday night so those okay. are the four main nights um saturday you know friday and saturday nights i could potentially do three or four gigs a night i mean obviously the uk is not that big wow. um so you could drive up and down the motorways go i could go to say for instance birmingham and then go over to manchester then go over to leeds and then come back down to trade Fuck. And then on Sunday night, I had... Be high while you're driving? I had a driver. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it gets to the stage where, you know, you have to focus. I mean, at at one point, you know, I had a driver, I had an agent, I had a manager, and I had a PR person. Wow. That all worked for me, I guess. Yeah, right. Because you do become... You know, as much as the persona or the or the image of this, you know, wild, these people wild having parties and running off everywhere and, and whatever, there is a, a serious side where, and that's business at the end of the day. Yeah. As I said, you know, you do become the product. Therefore, you have to look after your product and then you have to have the right people around you to be able to um, 
do the necessary things to get you to where you need to go. You, like going into that career, it, kind of carving this path of like this, it's a whole new thing. Oh, wow, yeah, crazy. What was the perception like with your friends, with your family? Were people like, you're mad, like you, you can't make a career out of <laughs> well, like yeah, I mean, my records? Fa- yeah, my family were like, you know, wh- where are you going with this? What are you doing with it, you know? Um, you know and then it's the, the, the old adage of, well, you're only playing other people's music. You know, that, that, we, that used right. to get thrown around a lot as well. Yeah. But, you know, um, like anything, you have to focus on, on you and you have to focus on your what your goals are and your outcomes uh, and not listen to those voices around you telling you that, you know, you'll am- amount to nothing or, you know, why are you doing this? You're risking too much. You have a very good, well-paid job already. Why are you giving that up? Because... I feel it's my passion and that's where I need to go. That's where I see my path. Um, and I'm not doing it for the fame and I'm not doing it for the money. I'm doing it because I enjoy it. And I want to spread, I hate to say it, but, you know, spread the word of the music and stuff. Um, and, you know, before you know it, the time moves on and you, you're amongst it and you're doing it. Yeah. You know? You're that guy. Yep. Yeah. Was it, um, I'm guessing the money was, the money was decent, the money? Not initially, you know, I mean, I'll be very honest with you, my first gig at trade was 25 pounds. Wow. You know? Yeah. Um, so I certainly didn't, I mean, the Lawrence, who runs you're not going to listen to this anyway, yeah. but you know, he was renowned for not paying us. <laughs> um, right. You know. Shrewd uh, business person. Oh, totally. You know, it, 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 he was one of those personalities. I guess he was like the, an Andy Warhol a personality, if you know who Andy is, is that, you know, he'd suck the talent out of everybody else and claim it as his own. Right. And, you know, I, I'm very open about that. And so is everybody else that ever worked for him and people know him. And that's who he is. He's a bit of a Svengali in, in a sense. But at the same time, he takes all the adoration for himself. I created this. I created these guys. Right. Oh, no, you didn't, actually. We were together about it. But that's okay. Yeah. You know, that's okay. Um, Gave you an opportunity. Yeah, 100% give me an opportunity and it's about working together. And at the end of the day, I wasn't co- too concerned about that side of things because I was playing to the people every Sunday morning. Um, and that was the important thing for me to see their reaction and to see, um, you know, a sea of people on the dance floor just having a good time. That was my driving force, nothing else. What were some of the, tell me about some of the biggest gigs you played, some of the, you know, oh, well, the most memorable events. Yeah, look, you know, I mean, come 1993, I was touring the world by then, um, you know, doing, for instance, one of the biggest tours, I guess, I did was of America, 28 gigs in 30 days. Whoa. Yeah, so that was a really, really tough gig, um, tough tour, I should say. But look, you know, I held residencies in Ibiza for 12, 14 years, so I played at um, Pasha, at Space, at Privilege, wow. at Coup. Um, so, you know, I've pretty much played every club in the world, every major club in the world. Um, they're, and they're, most of those are still the big clubs, yeah, I mean, stalwarts it, of the Abetha scene? Guess, I guess if, yeah, I guess if you know your club and then you know if I say Twilo in New York, you know exactly what I would mean, or Limelight in New York, or if I said Zook in Singapore, or if I said Agia in Tokyo, you would know, you know, these are the pinnacles, they are the number one clubs in those cities around the world. Right. And, you know, without sounding a bit too up my own ass, I've played every single one of them yeah. on, 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 on a very regular basis. How so, I mean, the biggest, I mean, two biggest gigs I've ever played at. It was, I guess, one of them is in Beijing Stadium to, to like 50,000 people. Wow. Um, and then, but the biggest was Love Parade, which is 
uh, Berlin? But, yep. So, yep. you know, playing to over a half a million people in the streets. Wow. And, you know, you can't see from any direction at all other than people. And it doesn't matter where you look. And it's just, ins- it's, it's an insane feeling. Paul and I went to Love Parade in uh, 2006. Oh, ah, okay. We did, yeah. You, you know exactly what I'm saying there. Yep. I you think know. yeah, it was uh, it was great. It was great. It was it was almost it was actually too too packed. Too, yeah, too busy, couldn't yeah. yeah couldn't get around. That's what I'm saying. Is like no matter where you look, it's people. Yeah, yeah. But it was epic. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's something that if you're into EDM or dance music, you should experience in your life. How do you so? How do you work as a? How do you become a resident DJ in Ibiza, Spain? Sure. Are you living there or are you flying? No, no, in flying. I mean, you know, the, that's, a, that's the lovely thing about living in London is that you have the accessibility to all these cities in, in Europe. Yeah. You know, I could go. The thing about Ibiza was that, you know, um, clubbing was seven days a week. Mm-hmm. So, you know, with some of the, for instance, the Ministry of Sound was on Tuesdays. Right. Yeah. So another club called Manny Mission was on Monday. Um, I've heard of that one. Yeah, Manny Mission. I think, I'm trying to think of it where was, I know about Ibiza. I think. Maybe I've seen a Have few. Have you been to Ibiza? No. Oh, okay. I did yeah. go to Spain. Yeah, yeah. I never went to, I think Ibiza, because I was backpacking, it was like, oh, it's going oh, yeah, to be cost really too much. Yeah, it's like, it's like most of the clubs is like 10 bucks for a, for a water. Right, yeah. It's really expensive. Um, but um, but no, but for, some, but for some reason I know a lot about yeah, it. Yeah, of course. Manu Mission, I've heard Manu Mission about. Was like, Manu Mission was a, a mixed gay sort of, like anything goes really, and they used to have all these wild shows. So it was very much like, an X-rated um, Cirque du Soleil. Right so they'd have all these naked trapeze over the dance floor and they'd have dwarfs going around <laughs> and they'd have a guy with a full erection on stage giving himself a blowjob. And <laughs> I know they'd have beds around the places and people were having sex in the beds. And Holy it was shit. just crazy. Absolute crazy. Everything went. And, and this is in the 90s? Yeah, in the late 90s. Awesome. Uh, <laughs> and the club that the, the venue used to have it at was called Privilege, and they have a swimming pool in the middle of the dance floor. So people were in the swimming pool naked, and there was all shit going on, and there was all the house music playing, everybody's on ecstasy. Holy shit. And this club could probably hold maybe 6,000 people. Wow. So, yeah, that was my mission. Man. <laughs> I mean, it's funny when you look at um, places like, you think of like Ivy Pool, and they're yeah. like, there's a pool, and it's like, has anyone ever been in it? That's like, right. No. <laughs> yeah, like, it's like that. We, we try to, we'd love to Emulate be able to that recreate that. That's right, yeah. But it's just, you can't. Yeah. You can't, you? no, 100%. There's a moment in time. And, you know, Ibiza, uh, I, I guess it's changed in the last few years, but, you know, it, at its height throughout the 90s, it was just a mad, mad place. Um, it's certainly overtaken by the Brits every summer. Um, that was the majority of the customer base, I guess. Yeah. So, you know, I would travel to Ibiza, say, on Monday, do, say, for instance, Money Mission Monday, and then I would do um, Ministry of Sound on, on Tuesday, maybe then defected on Wednesday, and, and then I'll come back to the UK and do then. And then I, but then I started to travel throughout Europe. So every major city, I had a, a residency through the late 90s at a club called La Queen in Paris. La Queen is pretty, f- again, it's the number one club in Paris. So I played in Paris for about four years. Um, and at the same time, I was also doing New York a couple of times a month. So, yeah. And at that time where you're playing multiple gigs throughout the week, yeah. are, you, are you staying clean, sleeping, not doing yeah, the drugs? Th- or th- were you still Oh, throughout the it? week, I would. Um, but I would, yeah, come the weekend, I'd party hard. 
Yeah, right. And that was in the party and the, the, the job. It just all melted into yeah. one. Uh, you know, uh, you turn up a gig and the promoter's like got a line chopped up ready for you on the desk. You know, right. Like, okay, oh, here we go. Um, or it would slip you a little bag of a few pills or, you know, it, 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 it was just the thing to do. You know, people would supply you with with class A's, yeah, you know, and I wasn't going to complain at the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, towards, I mean, stepping, jumping ahead a few years, towards the end of my, not that, not that my career has ended because I still do DJ occasionally, but when I decided that um, I wasn't going to continue doing it as a proper career, I'd already given up um, partying because it, it, got, it got too much, really. You can only sustain that sort of lifestyle for so long before you your body starts saying, nah, you know, sort yourself out and have some sleep. Yeah, right. Yeah. And was that, I mean, was that ultimately <coughs> one of the drivers to to get out of the game at that level? Because I'm guessing even if you're, if you're staying clean, yep. you know, not taking drugs, probably a yep. better way to put it, um, yep. playing a gig at 5 a.m. is fucking hard on the body. Oh, totally. I mean, that's that's another, there are, there are a number of things that led me to make that decision to give up DJ full time. And, being in a club at four o'clock, five o'clock, six o'clock in the morning, sober was one of them. <laughs> you know, uh, the tr- again, you know, I don't want to sound um, uh, ungrateful for the career that I've had, but one of the things that becomes very tiring is traveling alone around the world. And that sounds like a selfish little shit to, things to say. But, you know, after 15 years or seven, 16, 17 years by then, you know, having to get on another fucking aeroplane and staying in another hotel by myself and then waiting to go to the gig and then doing the gig and then having to perform because, you you know, you do perform. It doesn't matter what anybody says. You have to switch on. Um, and then, you know, do the do the whole thing in reverse and then go to the next city and yeah, it becomes very tiring, believe me. Yeah, I, I don't think anyone would, would uh, hold that against you. I mean, yep. the... Yeah, like, you know, um, could you even hold down a relationship during that time? Or were you I did, yeah, I did. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, my partner at the time, you know, we had been together, well, we were together in total of 14 years, supported me absolutely throughout the whole thing. Um, didn't travel with me, um, but certainly supported me throughout the whole time. Right and, you know, it was tough on the relationship at times because obviously you're not around for certain things, social events, going out with friends at the weekend and catching up and that because they're the times that I might have to work. Um, so I did, I did miss out on a lot as well. I missed out on a lot of social events in my life. Um, even close friends' weddings, you know what I mean? It's like, I'm sorry, I've got a gig that's been booked in for months and I can't cancel it. Um, yeah. So yeah. But yeah, you know, uh, it's... Um, I had a fun time too, you know, it's, I have no regrets about my DJ career in that sense. Um, and I got to see the world. I'm very grateful for that. I got to see and I've got to meet, I got to meet a lot of people. I got to, got to meet a lot of my, um, uh, my heroes, I guess, in the, in the music world. And that's always good. Who were some of those people? Oh, I guess Danny Salaglia would be one of them because I looked up to him as a, as a, a master of his skill, you know, and I always admired how he could DJ for, he was known and synonymous for playing sets that were like 17, 18 hours long. Oh, wow. And he did that every week. You can't fake that. No, you can't fake that, (laughs) 100%. Um, And he used to have a club in New York called Be Yourself. Um, And I never forget when when my agent called me and said, you never guess who's just called to ask you to play. I'm like, I don't know, tell me. He's like, Danny, he wants you to play at Be Yourself. 
And you know, it's those moments in my career that are like, wow, this guy is my idol, essentially my hero. Uh, and to get to play with him alongside him in his club that he built um, was a very big honor for me. Ah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, man, understandable. Yeah. And, you know, and I got to play with with every household name you can imagine. You know, your Carl Coxes, your Paul Oakenvold, your, you know, uh, Onsen Billing and those guys. Um, and because they were, you guys were all coming up at the same time? Yeah, I guess so. Um, and also, um, you know, we were all at the top of our game in our own genres and our own styles. Um, and I guess to give you an, an idea, and I'm, I'm sorry, I do have to blow my own trumpet to get to this point. Um, it's important, you must. <laughs> and I guess, so you get the idea of it, you know, I was voted one of the top DJs in the world five years running at my at my pinnacle. So, you know, I was headlining these gigs with, with, my, uh, with my peers, I guess. And that's how I sort of got to know all those guys. Man, that must have been a trip. Like, you know, just thinking... Like, yeah, you're doing it because you want to share it with people. You love the music. Yep. And then, then all of a sudden you're like, DJ of the year, five years running. Yeah. You're just a kid who, you know, picked yep. up some decks and started. Like, exactly. Like, okay. yep. did, you, did you trip out on that? Like, did you think about that a lot or was it just mm. all happening? It was just all happening, I guess. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, when, when somebody calls you or you open a magazine and your face is there going, you know, it's, it's a, this number, you know, number 22 DJ in the world is Alan Thompson. I'm like, oh, fuck, that's me. You know the reality is is that, but uh, again, you know, uh, I never aspired to, to be those that person. I just wanted to play music, uh, and I was kept true to myself. I kept true to. This is one thing that I'm very proud of, is that I kept to my true beliefs in my music. Um, I always played what I felt was right. I never undersold myself. I never um, sold out, for a better word. Um, I've only ever had one occasion if you think of a career of 27 years full time anyway touring around the world multiple clubs continuously I've only ever been booed once wow <laughs> wow yeah you know, and I'm what happy, brought that on I'm happy to tell, say that you know what I mean I'm happy to admit that that happened um, uh, basically what happened uh, it was in Slovak- Slovakia uh, and this was probably late 90s yeah, 97, 98, around that time. That was sort of the, not the height of my career, but certainly the beginning of the height of my career, if that makes any sense. And as I said to you earlier, a lot of promoters and other people around the world were paying a lot of attention onto trade. And uh, there were a lot of promoters jumping on the bag again without knowing what trade was about. Huh. So they started to book us DJs for their gigs, trying to, you know, jump on that, on that name. So anyway, I got, I got booked to play at a gig in Slovakia. And I, uh, when I was picked up at the airport, I was like, uh, I'm not getting a good vibe from these people. They were all like, did I say they were trancing and they all had like day glow on and they were all off their fucking tops on speed. And I'm like, and you know, they, they still put music in the car and it's like, you know, 150 BPM. And I'm like, shit, what the fuck is going on here? It's only like three o'clock in the afternoon anyway. Um, so we have to drive from the airport to get to the, the warehouse party. Uh, and obviously trying to ch- chat to them at the time and they, I'm like, you know, so what sort of music do you play? And they're like, yeah, man, we play Belgium, sort of like hard step and stuff. I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. And anyway, we talk it. I'm getting very nervous as, we, as we're as driving to the gig. As we're approaching the field, because it's a big, like, 
basically it was like an aircraft carrier um, building. Uh, you could see the light in the distance and all that sort of stuff. And uh, as we get close, I can hear the music and it's just going... It literally is like a... Um, uh, what do you call those drill hammers? I mean, like, oh, yeah, like a jackhammer or something. Like a jackhammer. I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> and I said to the dude, is this the sort of a thing you're expecting me to play? And he was like, yeah, man, yeah, man, yeah, man. I'm like, dude, you've got the complete wrong guy. So we get to the gig and I'm standing on the side of the stage and literally this Gabba. Do you know, how, do you know what Gabba is? Yeah. I mean, it literally is Belgium, Holland, sort of like 150, 160 BP. I played 125, just to give you an idea. Right. So, you know, this is just way beyond my range. So I said to the guy, look, this isn't going to work. I'm telling you now, in my experience, if you put me on that stage, this is not going to work. And he was like, no, 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 no. They know who you are. They know who you are. Up I get on the stage, of course. They, they In those days, in those type of rays, they would... They would stop the DJ before and make the announcement. So they announced me on. And I'm going through my vinyl, as I was at the time, thinking, what the fuck am I going to play? What the fuck am I going to play? And then, you know, I'd put a piece of vinyl on, and I'd pitch it up as fast as I could. Literally within three tracks, I was like, whoa, get off. <laughs> and then the next thing, bottles become at the stage. And oh, shit. And then I just walked off. Basically, I'm like, I'm not taking any more risks. Um, there are bottles being thrown at me. And I said to the guy, I told you. This was going to happen. I mean, I know I'm experienced enough to know that my music that you've booked me for is not appropriate for your party, and that's the end of the thing. Take wow. me, take me to the to the airport, um, hotel as it was, um, and that's what happened. That, the, that is the worst gig of my life. Yeah, right, yeah, man. That must. I mean, especially knowing it, knowing yeah. that this is going to flop gonna and fucking, just and it, it still make me get on stage. Yeah, you know, in front of maybe fifteen, twenty thousand people. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> but you know, brutal. you've got to take the bad with the good. Yeah, one um, bad gig in 27 years ain't bad. Oh, look, you know, I mean, there are, there are dodgy gigs. <laughs> and, you know, there are, I've, I've, I've turned up to gigs that, you know, might be half capacity, whatever. I mean, but hey, it is what it is. Uh, this thing, these things happen. Um, but for the majority of my career, they've, they've been pretty good. What would be, um, were there, was it all. Um were they all legal sort of sanctioned events, or were there were there like so, well I, some I, fringe stuff happening in, back in, then? In the early days, it would have been elite, yeah. I played at illegal warehouse parties. I mean, they were very synonymous with the early days of house music in the UK. Something that um, I didn't get to play at too much, but certainly I went to was the M25 raves, and they were all illegal. They were basically warehouses in, in in like industrial parks that somebody would hire for the weekend, put a sound system in there, and, and charge twenty pound to get in. Right, um, and you just hope that the police didn't turn up, you know, and shut you down. And I had definitely been to parties and played at parties where the police have shut down part of them, shut them down. Was there any legal risk for you in those situations? No, not for me. No. Yeah, I mean, because obviously you're not the promoter; it's the promoter who would have probably scarpered about an hour ago anyway. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Just has taken all the money off the punters and is just pissed off. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, the main thing for me was making sure I got paid before I went on the stage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you, did you have a, like a last sort of big gig where you knew uh, this uh, would be my last residency? No, nope. uh, well, I guess I did in the UK um, because when I left the UK to come to Australia in 2004, I guess that was... Really, that really was the height of my career. And everybody thought I was absolutely crazy. 
to move to Australia uh, because I had such um, prestigious residencies. Um, I was working all over the world. But without going into too much detail, you know, personally, it was the thing for me to do. Um, I just had to get away from London for a couple of reasons. Yeah, right. Um, and as I said, I won't go into too much because they are personal. Um, but yeah, you know, I was given the opportunity to come to the big island um, by a guy called Justin Hems, <laughs> and I'm sure so might have heard of him. Yeah, might have heard of him. Um, I'd been on tour in Australia in 2003. He'd heard me play. And then, um, as you know, well, some of you will know that he owned a nightclub called Tank, yep. which is now Mr. Wong's in Sydney. Tiora's, uh, Tiora's sister used to work the bar at Tank. Oh, really? Well, yep. there you go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. For some fun times, right? Yeah. <laughs> Actually, yeah, she, she trains here, Rashida. Not right now, but... Oh, sweet. Just, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I was actually brought here um, by Justin Hemsley. He offered me a sponsorship. I said, would you like to come to uh, Sydney, be our resident DJ at Tank, uh, do musical director for some of the the, um, the venues? Yes, sweet. Why not? Um, at the time, also, I was obviously still playing for Ministry of Sound. I'd, I'd done a lot of albums with them. And then uh, we have a subsidiary in Australia of Ministry of Sound, which is owned by uh, a man called Tim McGee. Um, Tim McGee then was like got wind of that I was coming here he's like okay so maybe you can uh, mix our albums in Australia and so it all started to come together I'm like hey, this is an opportunity I can't miss really uh, you know Justin had offered to pay for everything for me to move over and I was like yeah why not um, that was 2004 and I said I would give it two years and here I am in 2022 still here Right on. So now, yeah, no, absolutely, you know, and I've I've made a life in Australia, and I'm now a citizen, and this is definitely home. But you know, I've no regrets of that decision of leaving the UK. But back to your point of a farewell gig, I guess. Uh, at that time, I was the resident DJ at Fabric in London uh, on Sundays at a club called DTPM, which was a, a brand that I'd been with for over ten years at the time, and they did a um, they did a farewell party for me. Um, basically, I played for about five hours, and I played all the hits of my career, and um, it was actually quite emotional because I never expected it to be such a big event. Um, and leading up to it, the, a lot of the press made a big thing of it. Um, people were buying tickets on the black market, and the, there was a queue on the building. I mean, even when I turned up, you know, I'd been DJing at that point for. 14 years, I guess. So, you know, to see these people turn out because I'm just moving to Australia and they're coming to say farewell and whatever. And, and I remember the promoter stopped, and, and this is not something that happens other than the, the gig in Slovakia, I guess, but the promoter came out and stopped the music before I went on, made a big announcement, um, turned all the lights off and then just said, it's time to hand over to Alan Thompson. <laughs> because the the cheer that, that rose from the crowd at that point was just amazing. Yeah. And and I I never forget that because it was just so emotional. And to think that you know, they they were sort of paybacking me for all the time that I spent with them. Um yeah, and I did get upset at the time. Um and yeah, uh, it was an incredible night. That was my farewell to London, I guess. Wow. But not to my career, because then, of course, I came to Australia and continued my career here. And, and then how long did it last? Like, did you did you make a decision, like, that's it, hanging out the gloves? Or has it always been something that you've kind of just kept I there? Yeah, I guess I kept it there. I mean, 
like I said to you, there are a few factors involved in my decision making. One was my age. Two was, you know, I'm I'm done with going to nightclubs late at night. Three, in the sort of like mid teens, twenties, um, you know, with the lockouts in in Sydney. Mm. Um, the club scene in Australia is very, very small compared to the rest of the world. It's shit house. Yeah, it's complete shit house. So you know, I was getting, I was getting dis, uh, disorientated with the clubbing scene itself. Um, there was nowhere that I could really play what I really wanted. Um, I was getting older. The crowd were getting younger. Yeah. Uh, musical changes. You know, I think uh, that was the beginning of electro. Do you remember that phase? Yeah. Um, and all that sort of stuff. I guess. Oh, I, I remember that phase. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I opened my own business uh, of the cafes and things, and that was taking up a lot of my time. And I was just disillusioned by the whole scene, uh, and I wasn't feeling the vibe of why I DJ anymore. Um, I wasn't doing it to be, as I said, for the money or the fame, um, and and certainly that was still there. But the love and the passion that I felt inside was dying, and I didn't want it to get to the point where I absolutely hated it. Yeah, Does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, yeah. so no, even to this day, I still have a great passion for for music, as in club music. I still buy music. I still get excited about when I'm on beatboard and I listen to stuff. You know, I'm playing next week at. Uh, puffed off of the ivy um so that'll be fun is it actually called puffed off yes right on <coughs> and obviously only people get in the pool at that event no it's in the ivy itself uh, okay in the pool um and then i'm playing uh for vivid um oh for, wow for minister sound minister sound are putting on a three-day event um and then on a friday i think it's the friday night they're doing a 90s night so i'm doing a full classic set oh dude yeah yeah so where's that really, uh where yeah, it's in some sort of like warehouse in the rocks. Apparently, it's a new venue there, so it's actually a proper good old warehouse party. Oh man! Uh, funny enough, that was announced yesterday. Um, They're going to release some of those nineties ecstasy tablets. <laughs> oh, let's see. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> going back to my roots, um, and then I've got a couple of gigs coming up at home and things like that. So it's really funny. Recently, I've been I've been asked to start playing again. So wow, let's see what happens. So yeah, okay. So I'm getting the and I remember yeah. actually funny story. Mm. Uh, Electric Gardens Maybe oh, three yes. years ago yeah. Paul T and myself Were having the annual Jungle Brothers Directors yes. meeting <laughs> At Electric Gardens And uh, we're, we're there Bopping around And we're watching Nicole Modaba Oh yeah I Nicole. think Oh that's right yeah, 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 we're, yeah. we're watching Nicole She's DJing And it's like You know she's one, of, one of the Stages One of the stages And then I'm like Fuck that's <laughs> Alan Standing behind the DJ And you're yeah. there Like part of the entourage You're yeah, just yeah. kind of Bopping around And I remember There's like I don't know, not thousands, but hundreds of people. Oh, yeah. And I like wave and you're like, oh, hey. Yeah, like, do it. Like, <laughs> well, funny because Nicole is a really good friend of mine. Um, so she happened to be in town to DJ. Um, and we used to party together in the early days. And um, she used to hang in the DJ booth with me at trade. And uh, she's from Lebanon, of course. So, ah, okay. Uh, yeah. I always thought Spanish. No, no, she's Lebanese. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So from Beirut. And she used to throw par- wild parties in Beirut. And I used to go and play there with her and stuff like that. So we go back. So like yeah, the early nineties. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and yeah, I remember that day. I was up there on stage. And I'm like, oh, who's that guy in the crowd? Oh, look at this dude. <laughs> and I think I remember you. You texted. I was like, hey man, yeah, what yeah. You and you were like, oh, my friend, you know, friends with Nicole. And then I think you said something like, oh, maybe I'm getting itchy fingers. Yeah, no, that's right. No, it was something. because I was up on. The, I hadn't been in a club in club environment or or in a festival for ages. And then Nicole said, oh, please come to the gig with me. Please. Like, All right, then I'll come with you. Um, so we'd met up at the hotel and we were chatting and doing shit and everything. And I'm like, 
then we get on stage and, and obviously you know it's a it's a restricted area and she's like no 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 you're coming on stage with me yeah yeah sure 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 and she did at one point say do you want to mix something in oh wow and i'm like no nah, because i'm not uh, you know what i mean i'm i wouldn't want to fuck up her set yeah it's her set and people have come to see here but also at the same time i'm like standing up there going oh i really want to play because <laughs> you know my head to start going in and then I'm like oh what would I play oh maybe I'll play this to you and maybe I'll play that to you but yeah, yeah. and what do you when you like when you you know when you feel the engage you want to play you want to start it's I, I'm yeah. guessing there's a like what is the thing is it this is it like you're kind of orchestrating the energy yep it's exactly what it is it, it's um, it's taking the people on, I mean I know it's a bit cliche but it really is taking the people on the journey Knowing that you control their mood and their their mindset, yeah, um, and knowing certainly in the days when I would take drugs when I was DJing, knowing that you're on the same level and you know where you're going to take them, and like you know if it's me, this is where I want to go. Let's see if they want to go there. Yeah, you know, um, but it's you know one of the skills of it, of in my opinion of a DJ is to read the room, as I said earlier, um, and it's it's that excitement of okay where are we going to go with this what, what do you what do you guys want give me some signs yeah uh, and you'll start playing something you go oh okay i can get a vibe here and then oh okay, i've got this tune let me get that one let's see what they do with that so it's it really is orchestrating the room you know um uh, yeah that's what that's what i love about dj and so like the, it sounds like with with the stuff that you've got booked now, yep. it sounds like you're still very much in the game. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, like in the last couple of years, I've been asked to play classics um, gigs, uh, and I've actually refused to do that because I don't want to come across as an old timer or you know, hey, let's drag him out. You know what I mean? Because he's from the nineties. <laughs> I don't want to do that. Um, you know, because I still. F- think i guess that i'm relevant uh, certainly in in the music that i play anyway you know i've because that's evolving constantly yeah 100 you know i don't play what i used to play in the 90s yeah i play what i feel what i'm feeling right now yeah uh, and even at my age you know i'm 59 i mean i, I guess some people could see that uh, old to be playing dance music to to people in a nightclub but i still have integrity in my my choice of music and i still have the passion and i can still recognize what would fit in my set and what i think identifies as an alan thompson sound yeah man that's a beautiful story oh thanks man (laughs) yeah i i I just you know i think there's so much like it's so cool and there's so many inspirational moments in there and you know yeah Yeah. you know like seeing the way that that you you know, like I can see what it means to you. Some of those moments, yeah, and of course. Yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a beautiful thing for you to share. Yeah, look, I mean, there's there's a whole two, like maybe thirty years to share, and I could go on for hours and hours. Maybe it's another podcast, but I think there is. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I've had an amazing musical career. I've had opportunities that people would die for, um, and I I'm thankful for all of that. Um, it's made me who I am today. It's 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 certainly given me opportunities I never thought that I would have in my life as a as a teenager in a small town in Wales with who left school at fifteen with no qualifications, um, come from a housing commission background, you know. So to have a life and the lifestyle that I've had uh, through music has been amazing, you know, uh, and I'm very happy and humble about that. If you look back on it all, is there anything you would have done differently or? No, 
<laughs> no regrets. Uh, you know, maybe some bad decisions along the way. Um, and I guess we all have those, but I don't dwell or, or live in the past. I think it's really important to focus on the future, the now and the future, I should say. Man, that's beautiful. I um, is there? Are you able to tell people where they can find your stuff? Like, is there? Um, look, you know, like I don't, I don't regularly play anymore. But I guess um, there's a couple of mixes up on SoundCloud. I mean, if you search in Beatport, you're probably going to find some mixes there. Some of my old tracks, you know, I, um, I have had a very lucrative um, production um, career as well. I've had uh, nearly forty albums and over 150 singles. So that, that that you released yep. through d- under different so e- labels, so e- either released um, or remixed um, solo projects, collaborations, um, various monikers, I guess, um, and slightly different styles. You know, mixed albums from Ministry of Sound and for Trade and for for Defected and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, there's a multitude of variation up there. Is there stuff? Uh, is there stuff on Spotify? Uh, I, I think there is. It's not that I look. I go of looking course. for my own picture. <laughs> I'm sure if you popped in Alan Thompson, but but don't be confused because I was telling Joey this. Don't be confused because there's an Alan Thompson DJ from America who plays very different to what I. Play. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, oh, this guy is not like. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, on SoundCloud, on MixCloud, there's some old mixes on there. It's really funny actually when I talk about SoundCloud because somebody sent me a comment on my Instagram uh, a little while ago. Um, and it was a mix that I made in 2001, I think it was. And, the, and this guy was like, dude, I thought this was from last week. It's so fresh. <laughs> I mean, it's like, yeah. So they're That's a bit, cool. bit, bit timeless as well, I guess. That's yeah. what you want to hear, huh? Yep. Yep. Mate, um, thank you. No, thank you. It's honored to have you here. Well, thank you for all the training tips I've had in my time. And I mean, you know, I wouldn't be where I am today in my training life without you. So, I, you know, I owe you a lot. Oh, mate, well, you know, <laughs> I think it, um, you were pivotal in my growth as well, you yes. know. and, and you, I was your first client. You were, <laughs> yep, yep, and, uh, and I'm very proud of that. And yeah, so, yeah. so yeah, it should the, be. The feeling's mutual. Thanks, buddy. Um, I definitely think there's another chat there down the track. Yeah, I'm up for it. Cool. Cool. Um, guys, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, who knows, maybe I'll run into it at one of Alan's gigs sometime. <laughs> um, if you enjoyed that episode, please share it with someone who you think would enjoy it too it's a, I think it's a really cool story to share uh, and here's an interesting piece if you if you did dig it uh, and you want us to get Alan back on the show let me know you know you can get in touch with me at Jungle Alliance or at JB Joey uh, thanks we'll catch you guys next week cheers Alan thank you <laughs>